I had, uh, had these slides, these pictures, and uh, last week we talked about, uh, at some length, what are you waiting for? And we talked about uh, the kingdom of heaven and eternal life and the, 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 the larger goals of our life, indeed our death, that we're all waiting for together as a community, as the body of Christ. And this was one of the images I shared about that. And then the second image, Jay, if you could put that up, uh, was this image, which is a scary one from my childhood that I shared a little bit about, of the image of what are you waiting for? Not, are, not what are you waiting for, but what are you waiting for? You know, jump in uh, with both feet. Don't be scared, because I was scared. And there's a story, but don't, I'm not going to tell the same story twice. And that's, that's what I want to talk about this week. And as it happens, that theme of what are you waiting for why aren't you jumping in with both feet? Uh, fit perfectly with the next passage in Luke uh, that we were going, that I was in the process of doing when uh, Advent came along. So I'm just going to conflate these two, and we're going to talk about this uh, story uh, from from Luke, this uh, um, the story of the rich young ruler, in the context of this Advent theme of uh, what are you waiting for? So let's read this uh, passage together. Uh, Jay, you can give me the next one there. I'm sure most of you are probably very familiar with this story. It's, it's, it's uh, a common one. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony and honor your father and mother. And he says back, all these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. The next one, Jay. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter, never one to let an opportunity go away, said, we have left all we had to follow you. And truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So that's the story. And it, in the context of, of Luke, remember th there was a, the, the story of, of um, uh, the, the, the man in, in the temple who you know, beat his breast and said, Lord, uh, you, you know, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and the man who said, thank you that I'm not like these other people. And then at the end of that story, uh, you know, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then th these, the two stories that come after that are just... Um, uh, their explanations of it, their events in the life of Jesus that sort of explain that. So the first one was, was a, the little children coming to Jesus. Uh, you know, nobody in, in this context is more humble or, or without power than little children. And those who humble themselves will be exalted, and Jesus uh, exalts the children, if you will. And then the very next thing that happens is this thing, where those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Does that make sense? So Luke is putting these together in such a way to sort of explain or show, exhibit, uh, this notion of exaltation leading to humility and humility leading to exaltation. Uh, the gospel writers, as I've said many times before, have no problem taking the events of Jesus' life and putting them in an order that, that extrapolates or, or, or um, elaborates on a teaching of Christ. 
Luke is, is, is no different. So these, these events in Jesus' life very nicely sort of uh, illustrate his point. Hence, uh, that's why they're in the order they're in. So what are you waiting for? Uh, the slide. Uh, what are you waiting for? Here is a man who I think we can safely say refuses to take the jump. He refuses, he waits as it were. He just, he's not gonna, he's not jumping into that, that pool. He decides to wait maybe. Maybe a not now kind of experience. Maybe not ever. Uh, we don't know. One of the, uh, if you go to the, the previous slide there, let's just, uh, I'll run through this real quick, uh, some details about it. One of, one of the things, just to get this out of the way, in terms of apologetics and the Christian life, um, you'll see this passage sometimes quoted by uh, people trying to shoot down the notion that Jesus being the Son of God and being inherently divine in his character. Uh, this quote, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they'll say, uh, Jesus didn't even call himself good. He said, only God is good. And so they'll say, this shows that Jesus himself was aware that he wasn't divine in nature not paying much attention to the context of the Gospel of Luke, whereby Jesus is born of a virgin by the Most High overshadowing her, and by the end of the Gospel, people are worshiping Jesus, and of course, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish life, well, by Jewish law, you don't worship anything but God. If you don't, anything else is pure idolatry. Clearly, Luke felt that Jesus was the Son of God and inherently divine. I could, we could go over that in detail, but People love, on the internet in various places, this is a passage that is known to agnostics and atheists and when they say, well, you know, this is sort of self-awareness of Jesus that he was not divine. That's just bogus, so we'll just clear that. that, and that you can just answer like that. That's just bogus is a perfectly good apologetic answer um, with an explanation attached to it, hopefully. <laughs> and of course, uh, the answer is, is somewhat um, that Jesus gives is nuanced. Uh, because, of course, what the man is doing is, is flat, it's a form of flattery of, of sorts, you know, good teacher, you know, it, it's kind of a, it, it's buttering him up, as it were, for the answer he wants. And so Jesus kind of pushes back and says, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But uh, at any rate, um, we'll move on from there. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Adultery, murder, theft, false testimony, honor your father and mother. Now, pop quiz it's how good a Christians you are. Is this all of the Ten Commandments? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it is not. Um, even Judson would know that. After he counted very carefully, he would know that. This is not all the Ten Commandments. So, uh, what, what's going on here? Jesus just get tired and say, okay, I've listed these and that's enough. Um, I, no, it's, it's a very specific thing. What I think is going on here, and I'll make the case for this as I go along, Jesus frequently does this in, in various instances in the Gospels. Um, uh, he'll often start off by saying to you, to us, what you're good at, what you do well, what you have accomplished. Uh, one of the prominent examples is uh, Nathaniel, when Jesus first meets Nathaniel for the first time in the Gospel of John, he says, here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile, in whom there, there is no falsehood. You know, and so he, or you know, to Peter, well, later on in his relationship with Peter saying, you are a rock and upon you I'll build my faith. Jesus does not have a problem with telling us what we're good at, what, we're, what our strengths are, and saying this is what you've done well. And I think this is an instance of this, of sorts. Jesus, in a way, is saying this, you know, the, these are the commandments you know. <laughs> these are the ones you seem to have remembered. You have not committed adultery. You have not murdered. You have not stolen. You haven't given false testimony against your brother or sister. And you uh, uh, 
have at least a fairly decent relationship with your parents or honor them or whatever that means in this person's life. We don't know. But these are the ones, and the first three you, you know pretty well, whether you've stolen an adultery and murder. Those are ones that aren't, it's not like a vague kind of have I loved my neighbor sort of thing. Like you either, this is either something you do or you don't. Um, and he, this is what he has, has done. Uh, the things that he has, uh, at least in the eyes of God, has had some success at. Which comes to the corollary, what about the other commandments, <laughs> which we'll get to here. Things that perhaps he has been less successful at. True story. So I was thinking about this uh, uh, through the week or as I was working on the sermon and uh, yesterday, Saturday, I was even, I was working at the uh, satellite reference desk at the library where I work and, um, you know, it was when I, when I have free time in between patrons at the library, I tend to think about my sermons because, you know, your tax dollars at work. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll get your money here, I'll get it there, one way or the other. <laughs> so I was thinking about this, and uh, Mike McQueen, who some of you know, is a, a local uh, minister slash evangelist in town. He comes up to the satellite representative, he's got a big box of books, and he lays it down, he's uh, clean out, anyway, it doesn't matter, making donations. And he, he said, he said uh, I, I don't know how it came up. He just, he just started talking, and uh, we were just chatting, and he said, you know, the thing is, um, he says, the thing is, and I didn't prompt this. I wasn't telling him about my sermon or anything. He said, the thing is, you have to follow all the commandments, is what he said. He says, and I do well in following some of them, and I don't do well in following others. And I'm like, it's like my sermon took on flesh and came and was started talking to me. You know, here's something else that you should think about. And then he said, he said, you look tired. And I said, I'm always tired. And he says, are you following the Sabbath commandment? And I said, you need to leave. <laughs> I, my sermon's getting bossy. Um, and the truth is that that is a commandment that I, I do. That, that's a hard one for me. So um, I, just, that was just humor. I just thought, was, here he is telling me about the commandments you should follow and not follow. And that was sort of the central theme of, of, of this passage anyway. I, so the ones that he, Jesus left out. Are, have to do with idolatry, mostly uh, commandment number one, don't have any other God before God's. Number two, don't make yourself an idol, which are kind of saying the same thing in different ways. God and God alone is your God. Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain, which um, I, I unpacked it a bit here, but just basically just kind of being flippant with the Lord, taking his faith, faith lightly or uh, whatever. Um, number four, keeping the Sabbath day holy. And number five, the fifth one he didn't mention, which is uh, the Tenth Commandment, don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's X, Y, or Z. Don't live a life of jealousy or of greed. So the only thing we know about this person that's listed in, in the Gospel is that he was a rich, young ruler. It mentions it a couple times in Matthew and Luke. A rich, young ruler. Now, if you anticipated what perhaps somebody of power and wealth in the prime of their life might have trouble with, these might be the ones that you would pick. <laughs> Keeping God at the center of your life, because if you've that much power and that much money, you are easily led astray to make yourself or your power and your money the center of your life. Coveting, of course, is greed. Uh, power and money tend to beget the desire for more power and money. These are things that we might, these aren't left out accidentally. Uh, these aren't, this just kind of makes this follow sort of naturally, that these are things that he would struggle with. So his relationship with God was flawed, and his relationship with things was flawed. He may not have been guilty of theft in the sense that Jesus lists of out and out taking things, uh, you know, in the middle of the night from someone's house, etc. but he was guilty of something maybe a, a bit deeper in some, in some ways. He says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. 
you know, he's very excited. So Jesus lists these commandments and he says, hey, I nailed it. All these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus says, well, hold on a moment. One minor detail, and then you're in like Flynn. One, one little issue, just lack one thing. I like how it's still lack one thing. This will be easy. Just give $50, $50 to the treasurer and uh, you know, you're, um, sell everything you have. It doesn't even, like, there's no, no caveat. And you can keep a, some food for yourself so you don't starve. Just sell everything you have and come follow me. I don't have a home, I just kind of wander around and I'm probably going to be persecuted. But give that away, come follow me, and you're golden. You, you've, hey, how easy is that? That's as simple as anything could be. So he just, he deals summarily with this young man's sins, is what he's done. This a young man's in a lukewarm relationship with God, perhaps he's very far from God, I mean, who knows? Idolatry is an issue in his life. He's, he's not in a good relationship with God, and, and his things and his power are at the center of his life. And so Jesus says, simply, simply dealt with. Give up all your things and follow me. And then your relationship with God is healed, and the things that you've made idols of are, are no longer an issue. And he says, you will have treasure in heaven. He says, uh, sell everything you give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. I like that he... You know, there's a lot of words for salvation in this, in this passage, you know, e uh, eternal life, uh, the kingdom of uh, God, uh, well, that's later in the next one, but, but when, he, when he talks to, the, to this young man, he uses the phrase treasure in heaven. See, the problem with this young, young man's heart is not that he wants security or freedom or power. That's not the problem with his heart. The problem with our hearts is not that we want security, it's not that we want power, it's not that we want freedom, it's not that we want all the things that we perceive money and worldly power to give us. Um, the problem is where we look for those things from. I think I got lost in that sentence, but the, the problem is where we derive those things from. That sounds much better. Our wanting those things is not sinful. That's part of how God has made us. That's part of how God, he's made us to be these things. He wants us to be secure and to have freedom and, and even power. I mean, these are all things that are humans are destined for, to have. Our desire for them is not the problem. I think too often the Christian message becomes that your heart wants certain things, that you want these things, and that's the problem. And so you must resist the things that you want and choose God. It's like taking vitamins. You know, you want to have the steak dinner, but you know, these are really, these are better for you and better for your heart, and you really should not have the steak dinner, but instead have these bland vitamins. That's sort of, sometimes in our language, or perhaps even in our hearts, that's the way we sort of perceive things or the way we think about things. But the truth is that we sell God's kingdom short when we think about it like that. And it's easy for us to think about it like that, I know. Because when you're pushing away idolatry, it feels like you're pushing away things that you, you would want sometimes, things that your heart desires. But the truth is that your deepest desires and your deepest hopes are met in Christ. The things that you most desperately want, whether you're aware of it or not, are found through God in Christ. And so it's not that you're picking vitamins over this whatever it is, it's that there, there's a much more lavish feast, a much more lavish meal, a much deeper, help me with the word, feeding, <laughs> a satisfying thing in front of you. Oh, Lord, my eloquence is just gone. <laughs> you just haven't, the problem is you haven't gone deep enough yet to look at the deeper desires of your heart. So you're settling for a meal of cold soup and hardtack when there's a full Thanksgiving meal on the other side of the door is what it amounts to. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get this young man to see. 
and this young man is so wrapped up in his stuff that he can't, you know, halfway measures are not going to work for him. And that often is true for those who are deeply enmeshed in their sin. You just, halfway measures aren't going to work. It, it's like uh, anyone who's st struggled with alcoholism or drug addiction, you know, you can't, it's, it's cold turkey for a lot of people. It's not like you can have a beer every other week or something. It's, it's all or nothing. And this individual it had to be an all or nothing sort of thing. This is not a message. This isn't a passage that says to all of us, you know, we, we get sort of worked up as middle class Americans. Do I have to sell all of my things and become really poor? And, you know, and, and no. Well, maybe. <laughs> no and maybe, I think, are the two answers. Um, because this is, this is a spe specific story about a specific man and a specific way of thinking. Thing. The issue is the idolatry. That's the issue. You may need to get rid of everything to, to get to that place where you can say to Christ, all, all that I have is yours. You may. I mean, I don't know. That's between you and God, and I'm not going to sit here and delineate. <laughs> Nanette and Lula and Jerry, these are <laughs> you, yes, you, not you. <laughs> not, uh, um, or you may need to give up something. You may, there may be something in your life. It could be your time. It could be some money. It could be some comfort. I, I don't know. But we need to have the, the point of view that we're willing to give up everything and follow Christ should he ask us everything and say, well, this is it then. I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. If we don't have that point of view, then God very well may ask you to give up everything. And that's the what are you waiting for aspect of faith, uh, to jump in with both feet and to give up and to be willing to suffer with Christ because therein you'll find your joy. And that is such the hard the hard aspect of the gospel to, to, to get our heads and our hearts around. But when we do, there is real joy there. It's not, it's not a fake, it's not a Christian mythology or some sort of heartwarming thing that pastors say because I don't know why pastors do what they do, but it's, it's truth. It's truth that when you give that up, whatever that is, there will be true joy there. True, I've never had this conversation with someone that last year or 10 years ago or a month ago, I completely gave my life to Christ and I gave everything to him. I just gave it all up. And God, I regret that day. I've just never had that conversation with someone. Maybe there, maybe you have. I don't know. But 99.9% .9 of the time, people are like, I'm so grateful. The burden that was lifted off of my shoulders, and I just said, Jesus, you take it. You just take all that, and I will carry on as a jar of clay, doing what I can in your kingdom. And there is glory, and there is joy. The tragedy of this, well, there's, there's a couple of levels of tragedy in this story, but one of the tragedies is that this man seems to know it. And I've seen that in the church. I've seen it in people who are struggling with Jesus, that this man seems to know. Um, you know he, he doesn't just say to Jesus, well, to heck with you, and walks away blithely, uncaringly. You know, he walks away sadly. He seems to know that he's losing that he has lost something by virtue of walking away from this offer that Jesus has made to him. And by the way, this, this, this is a, a unique offer. I mean, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. There is something about this man that Jesus really, you know, he, there's a connection there made of sorts. It's hard to explain, but Jesus ministers to everyone, and he loves everyone in, in, you know, we, in all the Gospels. But he doesn't invite everyone to join his entourage. Some people, he says, you know, you, they stay where you're at, you know, be a, Christian or minister where you're at, most people in fact. But this man, he says, no, come follow. He could have just said to him, you know, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and full stop, you know, and, and there you have it. But not this man. So, 
you know, it was it, it was such an opportunity that opened up before. I mean, he could have been one of the disciples. Uh, you know, he could have been. What would his story have looked like had he said, you know what, I'm going to do that? You know, like like um, uh, like what's his name, Zacchaeus, uh, the, the tax collector. Um, you know, who said, you know what, I'm going to. Here, here's my life, and I'll pay back everyone, etc. What would his life have looked like from that point on? I think it would have been a joy. I think there would have been laughter in his life, a, a community of people who loved him. He would have seen Jesus in power, etc., etc. His life would have gone a whole different way. And maybe it did later. I mean, who, who, it's not, we just know this little brief story. Who knows what happened with this man as his life unfolded. But in this moment, in this, in, in this event, he knows he's losing out. And he's, he's sad about it. He doesn't want to go back to his life as he knows it, but he's already trapped. He's already enslaved by his money and power. And that is the truth of what sin is, that sin is an enslaving force. It looks like freedom, it's sold as freedom, it's touted as freedom, and people love to point to the church and to Jesus in particular and say, there's slavery. And that's the battle we're having. That's the, that's the, 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 the conflict of, of narratives that we're having. Where is, does true freedom lie? And what we say is when you bend the knee to Christ, there you will have true freedom. And what they say is, this man who walked away from Jesus back to his life was truly free. But even that man knew that <laughs> he wasn't truly free. Even that man couldn't grasp the, the, the desires of his heart. He was stuck. And boy, I can relate to that. I, you know, I'm not, I hope you don't hear me thinking, oh, and I, I'm so much better than him, or I, I wouldn't have been stuck like that. I know that money and power, if, I'd gotten, if that had been gotten into my heart at a young age, <coughs> it would be very hard to give that up. Uh, things get into my heart as it is, and it's very hard to give up. And um, it, it's where we find our worth, where we find our, our hope and our, our love is very hard. I remember, uh, uh, what was his name? Um, Michael Holmes the, the, uh, preached here once and really convicted me. And he, I don't remember his whole message, but I remember one part that stuck with me very well, but he talked about how, you know, what if all of your identity was gone in the sense of your degrees? Uh, being a pastor, being a husband, uh, listing the, my, my things, the things that create me as an individual that give me pride and I get up in the morning, this is who I am. <laughs> and if they were all just gone, would I still love Christ and, and love my God? And really, it's the, that's the book of Job story, right? Here, Job, take everything away. Are you still with me? And maybe we won't really know that for sure until the end, but just thinking about that was helpful to me, you know, and um, am I still with Christ till the very end? You know, have I, have I done essentially what Christ asked this young man to do, which is to lay everything at the altar and say, this is it, full stop. Life, death, poverty, rich, riches, etc. I think so, speaking for myself. I think so, I hope so. Um, I'm still waiting for something, but I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting at the top of that slide, waiting to f slide down anymore. I slid down the slide. I think. <laughs> I'm waiting for God to finish what He has begun in me. That's and that's what Advent means to me. <laughs> I'm I'm waiting for God to finish. You know, like like the first like watching a, a a master painter paint the first brush strokes of a beautiful painting. I've seen the first brush strokes in all of you, even in me, in our communities and in the, in the Gospels, and I'm waiting for the painting just to be done. And it, it looks good so far to me. 
such as Advent.